listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome back. Buckle up. It's going to be a weird episode. Yeah, if you're not in the mood for a weird episode, bail out now. Because it's going to be a weird for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm in a strange state of mind. I am about to get on an airplane to fly back to California, where this podcast began when I was the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California. Um, but I'm flying back this time to perform the wedding of my son and my soon-to-be daughter-in-law, both of whom have appeared on this podcast, Roman Campolo and Ali Tamposi. They are getting married. And the preparations for this marriage, you know, which was delayed a few times because of COVID um, and is different because they're in the entertainment industry. And so weddings just are different when you're a grown-up in the entertainment industry than like when you're like me and you're like a 24-year-old kid working as a youth pastor, you know, where our wedding reception was held in a gymnasium and we served cold cuts. Make your own sandwich. Um, Everybody got plenty to eat. And the cakes were sheet cakes that my mother-in-law made. And there were balloons. That was the decoration. There were balloons. Uh, Blown up by some of my youth ministry buddies. So yeah, it was just a different deal. So this is a real grown-up wedding, like out there overlooking the ocean. And, you know, I bought a suit. I don't buy, I buy a suit about every 15 years. I bought a suit for this one. And... I actually, about six months ago, this is a funny story. You know, I I had braces when I was a kid. I don't know if it's a funny story. Don't you hate it when somebody starts out by telling you it's going to be a funny story and then you feel the pressure to think it's funny? This is a story about when I was a kid and I had braces for like five years. And I even wore one of those night brace things, those things that strapped around your neck. And I was forced to wear mine for most of the sixth grade during the day two at school. And you can imagine how that went over, how that raised my social profile. Uh, So I I did all this stuff to get my teeth straightened. And when they were done straightening them, thank you, mom and dad, nobody, nobody at that time said, you got to wear a retainer for the rest of your life. These things will go back. And so I didn't, and they did especially the bottom ones. I ended up with this big snaggle tooth, which didn't bother me so much when I was younger and my face was not yet pulled down by gravity. You used to just see my top teeth and they looked great. And now you can see my bottom teeth really well. And as I'm having grandchildren, I've started to worry that they're going to think of me as like scary looking snaggle tooth poppy. So I actually joined the smile club and have those like, you know, sort of Invisalign things, these plastic things they send you through the mail after they've computer generated your teeth. And they're kind of working. Uh, you know, at some point I'll, I'll post a photograph um, of my new smile. And, I, you know, I just got to say that while the rest of me is, you know, deteriorating, my smile is better than it's been in 15 or 20 years. 
And I guess I was thinking about this wedding and I thought like, you know, I probably like, I very seldom get my picture taken in a serious way, but I'm going to get my picture taken. So, you know, the teeth are going to be better. I'm going to be wearing the new suit. It could be a big day for me. Um, appearance wise, it will be a big day for me relationally. Um, and I perform a, a fair amount of weddings and I, you know, typically I use some version of the same homily, uh, each time, but both my son and my daughter-in-law have seen me do weddings. They, they saw me do my daughter's wedding. I got to come up with a new homily. So yeah, so I'm thinking about love and commitment and the nature of marriage, which is honestly marriage outside of a Christian identity. Marriage is, is a strange institution to justify. Like when you would say to a young person, here is the reason you should get married. Here's the reason you should formalize your relationship. I, I don't really have a good argument. I mean, I like being married, but I think, you know, you could change your name and write each other into your wills without legally binding yourself that way. And I'm, I'm not actually sure of the meaning of marriage anymore. And yet, people want to do it, and they want it, – it, it, in, in a sense, a weddings, I understand, like the idea of an event in which you invite all the people that love you or as many as can come, and you formally celebrate your commitment to one another. That makes sense to me. Uh, but the legality of it, I don't fully understand anymore. And so – I've been thinking about it, and that's put me in a weird headspace. Um, weirdly happy. Like, it'll be, it, I'm excited about this wedding. And my mother-in-law will not, is no, no longer with us to make the cake, but my sister-in-law is going to make the cake at this one. The difference is it won't be a flat sheet cake um, because my sister-in-law is a serious baker. Um, so I'm excited about the cake even. Yeah. I don't know that any of this is interesting to anyone else. But I, 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 I've been told by listeners that I should share a little bit more about my sort of personal life in the present. So there you are. Uh, the other thing you ought to know is I really like being a counselor. It's, it's actually been really exciting these first few months. It, it, it's kind of like getting paid, not getting paid a lot, but getting paid to do something you always just did for the fun of it. And it's still fun to sit down with somebody one-on-one -on -one and just focus your energy on them and focus your attention on them and see if in a conversation you can't work through some problems um, and put them in a better place or set them on a better path or give them some skills or some ideas that they didn't have or help them work through to, to figuring those things out for themselves. It's, it's really quite a joy. Um, and... I'm starting to realize that a lot of my clients are like, gee, if I'd known it would be like this, I would have signed up sooner. And I've talked to some friends who are like, yeah, I did therapy once. And then I decided like I would do it for the rest of my life because who doesn't want to have a nice person to sit down with once a week that there's no requirement for reciprocity, that you're just focused on you. Um, and, and, you know, it's not unlike the coaching stuff 
the, the sort of pastoral counseling that I've always offered through this podcast, where lots of listeners end up reaching out and saying, hey, I've got a, an issue in my transition of faith or an issue in a relationship, or I'm stuck in a way. And I mean, to be honest, I can't fully differentiate between the the counseling and the coaching. There, there are some differences. I'm freer to give advice during the coaching situation. Um, and I'm more prone to try to help somebody fa to facilitate their own process during counseling because that's really what formal counseling is supposed to be about. But I might be a little bit more of an advice-giving counselor than the average bear. Yeah. Anyway, I'm having a really good time doing it in case you were wondering. And I, and I, and I still am having a really good time doing the coaching because the counseling, that yeah, I got that degree so that I could talk to people face-to-face -face here in Cincinnati legally. Um, the stuff I do that is formally called coaching is the Skype stuff with people all over the world, um, most of whom find it through the podcast or through a friend who recommends. And uh, it's all just been really exciting. The only thing I'm sad about is I really am excited to get back to building this caravan community here in Cincinnati and to working on that larger part of my life, that, that deep passion of mine, which is to figure out how to create tribes and communities for people that don't have them, sort of family vibe, uh, a place of belonging for people that, that don't have that, that's built around shared values and built around a commitment to building loving relationships and to making things better for other people and to, to experiencing wonder and gratitude for, for the privilege of consciousness and human life in the first place. Um, that kind of inspirational celebratory thing that, you, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you've heard me talk about a million times. Um, and I think we're on the cusp of getting Caravan started again this month. And I will fill you in about that as soon as I have more details, um, both in case you're local or just in case you like to follow from afar the building of a small community from scratch by volunteers in case you might want to try something like that yourself. All right, weird enough yet? Because I, I don't usually talk this sort of, I don't know, colloquially or, or just sort of off the cuff, but I'm feeling it today. The other reason this is going to be a weird podcast is I, I, this is not a a, um, a Q&A podcast. This is one where I, I'm going to share a conversation with you that I had with a woman named Chrissy Stroop, who I met for the first time during the podcast. And, and here's the bottom line is this Christian, very evangelical pastor and writer named Ed Stetzer years ago wrote an article about me that kind of threw my dad under the bus in the name of Jesus. And uh, I haven't thought about him again, but I thought about him recently because he wrote an article this summer about Joshua Harris's deconversion. Joshua Harris, for those of you who grew up in evangelicalism, is the guy who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Very weird, kind of hyper-evangelical sexual repression stuff, but written in a really kind of winsome way. Anyway, Josh deconverted and that, as it always happens when a Christian leader deconverts, created a major fuss. Ed, as he always seems to do, wrote an article about it. And Chrissy saw this article and wrote her own article criticizing Stetzer. And in her art, you know, and one of the things that she criticized was the way he talked about me. And I, I, I kind of reached out to her and said, hey, do you want to talk about this? Because one of the things that she noted in her article was that people like me were never true believers. 
And I guess people like her were never true believers. I wanted to talk to her about that. But the other thing he talked about was he want, he was encouraging evangelical Christians to use, I guess what you would call friendship evangelism, to love people rather than to criticize them in order to win them over to converts. And Chrissy's like pissed off that he's encouraging Christians to like reach out and warmth. She's like, that's fakery, that's manipulation. And I found myself thinking like, well, isn't that what we all do? I mean, isn't that the only way you could get people to change their minds about anything would be to connect with them, get them to the place where they were willing to listen to you. I mean, who who's ever changed my mind except somebody I cared about? Many of you have remembered the episodes that we did with David Fleischer um, about deep canvassing and that's his whole deal. So anyway, what happens is Chrissy keeps talking about LGBTQ stuff and trans stuff. And I didn't understand it. And I didn't figure it out until about halfway through the interview. Like, oh, Chrissy is a trans woman. Anyway, it ends up being a conversation where like, when I hung up, I was like, wow, that wasn't what I expected at all. And probably if you listen to it, it won't be what you expect at all. But I think it's kind of a good, it's really a different angle on this question we've wrestled with a lot this year, which is, should you try to form friendships across major ideological divides? I ended up thinking, gosh, Chrissy, you and I don't think the same way at all. But I also ended up thinking I really was grateful to her for talking with me. And I think she pressed me to think about some things. And hopefully I I did the same for her. Hopefully. If you want to see me sort of like get wrong-footed a few times and, and see me like thinking on my feet, keep listening. Either way, I will hit you with a wonderful quote on the other side. But for now, this is me and Christy Stroop having a talk. Well, Christy, thanks for coming to talk with me. Oh, my pleasure, Bert. It's funny because I became aware of your article because I was mentioned. Um, Mm -hmm. but what was interesting was, is I haven't heard the name Ed Stetzer in a heck of a long time, um, because Mm. I, I just don't live in that world at all anymore. Uh And, um, but I remember the article that he wrote about me a long time ago and I got the impression. And then I, you know, I sort of ran it down reading your article that he had sort of dredged up those, that, that whole same set of arguments and thought like, hey, I'll use it again at, you know, in contrast to Joshua Harris. That's exactly right. And in both cases, you know, he tried to show that he was supposedly, you know, broad-minded and affectionate toward both of you. And I think to use your narratives in a particular way, but I would really like to hear, you know, you know, if if I got it right, and what and what you think about Ed Setzer? I mean, I've never met him in, in person. You know, he says he had a warm relationship with you once upon a time. Gosh, it's it, I think he had a warm relationship with somebody. I don't I don't think I ever I don't remember meeting him. But you know what? What happens is when you when in my old days when I was a traveling Christian speaker guy you'd meet people all the time. You know, somebody pick you up at the airport Mm -hmm. and drive you to an event or you talk to somebody afterwards. And my basic mode then and now is just to be like nice to everybody. 
And so oh, I, th- sure. I think he must have just encountered me somewhere and thought like, what a nice guy. Um, <laughs> well, it's not surprising to me, to be honest, and this may be a little uncharitable, but it's not surprising to me that Ed Setzer is a name dropper. Um, it, it became pretty clear from, uh, that article that he, you know, doesn't feel as famous as he might like to be, I I think. I mean, I feel like the guy is a huge phony anyway, and I, I, yeah, I don't like him. Okay. I only know him from his written output, but yes, I I admit I'm biased. I don't like him. Have you read more? (laughs) Have you read more of him than just like that one article? Oh yeah. I mean... I haven't read any Ed Setzer books, but I read his articles fairly often so other people don't have to. I mean, I try to keep my pulse, uh, my my finger on the pulse a little bit of what's going on in in Christianity today and in the evangelical world in general. And um, Ed Setzer is one of the foils that I've regularly written against in recent years. Um, You know, the kind of guy who is a little more slippery because he's what I call a respectable evangelical Uh, He wants to have all the bad theology, you know, without any of the social consequences. And so he will say things like, well, I've marched for racial justice. I also voted for justice. I also supported, you know, Justice Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I don't I don't I don't like the guy. I do read his output fairly often. Um, I'm a you could say I'm a masochist, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but really, it's just it's more about documenting and and remembering um, evangelical authoritarianism and, and trying to call it out even in its kinder, gentler form. <laughs> so I'm a notoriously bad beginner of interviews because I'm just interested in the person. Like I'm like, oh, well, I want to I want to talk about you and where you can. And, like, and so I want to get into all of that. I mean, I, I am interested in you. But what, um, <laughs> that, that sounds very, sounds very, uh, what's the word? Transactional. Like, I'm not really interested in you, but I want you to think that I am. No, I, I believe you. It's, I mean, <laughs> yeah. but thanks. What, but, but when I picked up this article, what I thought you were kind of saying is, is evangelicals have a problem talking about or, or coping with, or sort of managing their response to the very idea that there is such a thing as an ex-evangelical, that there mm-hmm. is such a thing as somebody who has left the faith, who was a genuine, hardcore, evangelical Christian, and now is not. Yes, absolutely. That, and that they have a major lack of empathy, one that is deliberately cultivated to uh, protect their exclusionist ideology. A lack of empathy towards everyone or a lack of empathy in particular towards ex-evangelicals? I think that it's it's sharper and more vitriolic toward ex-evangelicals, but really a lack of empathy for anyone uh, outside the fold. They, uh, as you know, construct all these sort of social disciplinary mechanisms, and many of them are, are internalized. Um, to protect the idea that they have the one absolute truth. They're right about everything. Anyone who disagrees with them uh, is wrong and not just wrong, but lost, hellbound, you know, maybe sometimes capable of good or being right about some things, but, you know, under the influence of the devil. Uh, So, yeah, you really, if, if, if that's your worldview, uh, you know, that we have the one absolute truth, 
Uh, we have total monopoly on that. You can't really maintain that worldview if you are a deeply empathetic person who really listens to people who have different ideas. Well, let me ask you then, what's your definition of empathy? Well, um, you know, empathy, of course, means to to feel with, right? Kind of to be able to put yourself in, in someone else's shoes. And I simply think that, you know, they've boxed themselves so much in mentally, ideologically, that they can't really do that. Empathy obviously doesn't mean that you have to agree with someone or the decisions that they made that put them in a particular situation. But when you've constructed such a tightly enclosed uh, worldview and you're so defensive about it, your empathy, your capacity for empathy is going to at least be limited. And I didn't say they have no empathy, but, you know, their their capacity for it is uh, is constrained, restrained by by their own, uh, you know, sort of desperation to be the only correct people out there. I do think an empathetic person will at least in general be willing to entertain the question of, am I right about this? You know, and maybe we all have our, our limits on that in some areas. And I think some of those limits would be more justified than, than others, you know. Um, well, it's interesting. I was just listening to Sam Harris um, this morning talking with uh, 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 one of my old sort of, I, I, would, I would wish I could call him a colleague, but like when I was at USC, he was a big deal at USC when I was a small fry mm -hmm. at USC. Um, but they were talking about how beliefs are formed and very occasionally changed. And mm -hmm. as they were talking about just sort of neuro neurologically, what parts of the brain fire? What are the things that keep people from, from changing their minds? Or, or why, why are we more prone to believe something than to not believe it coming out of the gate? It's easier for us to adopt a new a belief than it is to reject it. And, and then, but then once we have a belief, it's very difficult for us to let go of it. And it's very mm -hmm. easy for us to reject anything that is in contrast to it. And as, as I was listening to them talk about that, I thought, yeah, how could an evangelical Christian have empathy? Because empathy requires enough imagination to imagine believing something other than you do. Exactly. And, and, and that, even that is threatening to them. Right. And because it's very dangerous to believe something other than you do if you're an evangelical Christian. It is a death sentence. And so the more motivated somebody is not to believe something, the more, the more difficult it will be for them to imagine believing it or to, to put themselves in that place, the more mm -hmm. reprehensible that thing is. So you go like, well, you know, I mean, imagine what it would be like to be a serial rapist and killer. And you go like, that's, a, like, that's not, I, don't, I actually don't want to get in that person's brain and imagine what that would be like. Yeah, that's also a case where, you know, I'm just kind of like, uh, I'm not really sure I can do that, you know? Right, because it's so far from your experience, but it's also 
far from an experience you want to have. Now, if I said to you, hey, mm -hmm. imagine what it would be like to be a superhero who could fly <laughs> and, and who could magically heal people by, by kissing them. And you go like, that's also far from your experience. But boy, you're, I bet you you could go there. Oh, sure. I mean, I'm, I, it's an interesting philosophical question whether, you know, something so impossible really constitutes an exercise in empathy. But sure, it's a fun fantasy. And, and I, I think that when I, whenever I encounter evangelical Christians, I always feel like we are on unequal um, terrain because I know what their experience is. And mm -hmm. I know what my experience is now. Like I know what it's like on both sides of that fence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But but yep. they but in most cases they do not. Right, and they're very afraid of what it might look like from this side of the fence. I mean, I'm right with you there with that insider outsider perspective. So, in some sense, you know, it, it, it's almost it's almost unrealistic. Uh, to expect empathy from an evangelical. Um, mm -hmm. I, th I think what we end up expecting from evangelicals and in many cases getting from evangelicals is either kindness or patronizing condescension or <laughs> a combination of those two things. Sure. And often the kindness doesn't really feel that kind because it usually is coming with a side of the condescension at the very least. And, and, an, and obviously an agenda is attached to it. Like I'm being, right, right. and you, you point I mean, that part out of in what your I was article. criticizing in this article was friendship evangelism, right? Which is, you know, this whole agenda of, okay, I'm going to make a deliberate, uh, you know, goal of making friends with people who are quote unquote unchurched or unsaved. So I can help lead them to the Lord, <laughs> right? Like there's, you're objectifying the person. Okay. You're placing but, yourself above that person. Right. And I'm a little defensive because I was the king of the friendship evangelists. Um, <laughs> but I'm also a little bit nervous because everything I'm learning about how to dial down the political tension in our country right now, mm -hmm. the, the kind of toxic politics, has to do with a person on one side of the fence reaching out with kindness to connect with, to make a really genuine human connection with somebody on the other side of that fence for the purpose of being able to draw them closer to that, to convince them to think differently about hmm. any number of issues. And so when we talk about it in that context, we go like, well, of course, we have to humanize the other person we, and we have to get them to see us as a human being. I mean, I, I had a whole long conversation with a guy named David Fleischman, who's that kind of the, 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 the founder of deep canvassing, deep political canvassing. And mm -hmm. th that was all what it was about. It was about gay people knocking on doors of people that had voted against gay rights in California and trying mm -hmm. to form some kind of realistic connection. So I'm not like... If, if you are an evangelical Christian, what else are you going to do? Like, like, I mean, like, what's the altar? What would you want an evangelical Christian to do <laughs> except friendship evangelize you? Um, well, I would say that something like canvassing 
doesn't seem like an exact or uh, direct full parallel to friendship evangelism to me, because when someone comes to your door uh, to talk about politics, you, you know what they're doing. And you may establish a, a personal connection. You may find that when you talk to them in, in person, you have a harder time othering them than, you know, when you're just reading something from Fox or watching something from, you know, uh, CBN or One American News Network talking about how supposedly there's all these men in dresses uh, trying to get into bathrooms for nefarious purposes, which, of course, is not a thing that happens. But this is an example that's close to my heart as a trans woman. Um, you know, when you're canvassing, you, people know what you're doing. When With friendship evangelism, there, I think I feel like it's always sneaky. Like, you never try to introduce the evangelism part right away, right? You just try to be like, oh, yeah, I have all these things in common with you. Let's get a beer if you're like one of those modern cool Christians, you know, or let's get a coffee. Um, and, and, you know, you try to cultivate that relationship with your agenda in mind, but there's maybe weeks go by or months before they even realize you have that agenda and then they feel used when it comes out that, you know, you're trying to convert them. Now, with respect to... Um, well, wait, wait, wait. Let me stop you, you there for a second. Let mm -hmm. me stop you there for a second because I'm thinking just, you know, you just identified yourself as a trans woman. And I'm thinking, surely in your life, you have neighbors and family members and people around you that are not on board, that are not supportive of you, of you as a trans woman or of trans people in general. Mm -hmm. And so you're, I mean, so you're capable of, on the one hand, going like, I do want to make a connection with you. And I'll be honest, obviously, I would love it if you came closer to my way of, of thinking, but it's still a legitimate connection, right? Well, let me say, no, I don't go trying to make friends with anti-trans people. So we're talking about pre-standing connections, you know, that already exists from childhood and so forth, where uh, you have a rapport with this person. Right. And then, you know, sure, to the extent that you can still relate to them at all, you can try to influence them. But you think it would be um, unethical or, or wrong to to intentionally make friends with people who think differently than you for the purpose of trying to win them over. I do, yeah. And I don't think that's the same as canvassing or No, it's not know. the same as canvassing. <laughs> but but I but 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 what I would say is is that as a as a trans person, if you're if we're not willing if if people that are supportive of trans rights aren't willing to make friends with people who are not supportive. If they're like, we'll yell at you, we'll argue with you rationally, we will politically um, organize against you, but we won't make friends with you. Because that, I, I, would, I would say, gosh, that all those other strategies are the least effective ways to get people to change their beliefs. The single most effective way to get people to change their beliefs is to form connections with them. And then on the basis of kind of a shared relationship and winning somebody's respect and, and building loyalty to them, that's when they will at least begin to, what's the word, entertain the possibility that your ideas might have legitimacy. Sure. But when someone's ideology 
causes them to be inherently dismissive and, and abusive towards you. And maybe they won't even respect your pronouns or your, um, you know, changed name. You are not under any obligation to engage with that person. No, people aren't under any obligation to try to uh, change the minds of people who are abusive toward them. So I think that's important. But if but, but um, you're not under any obligation, but if you want to cre- if if you want to gain political power or if you want to change political policy, it would be in your best interest to do so. You're not obligated. You don't need to do it for their sake, but for your sake, it would be a good idea. I think it helps more for uh, cisgender allies in the case of trans people to take that sort of burden upon themselves. Some more privileged trans people can, but for for some of us, I mean, we're a very marginalized community. Most of us don't have many resources. Um, you know, just the emotional capacity is not there and the expectation is not fair. I mean, and, and, you know, the right is so extreme these days that personally, I don't feel like most Republicans let alone evangelical Christians, are reachable. And I'm not the kind of person who is going to make a deliberate effort to to do that. I don't write what I write for them. If it helps convince somebody, great, but that's not my role, the the way that I see it. They're they're so far gone. I'm I'm just going to be consistently, you know, oppositional to where they are. Um, but if I form a connection with someone around some shared interest organically. So I will, uh, you know, revise what I said previously about pre-existing relationships. They don't necessarily have to be pre-existing. Um, but, you know, uh, they, I think that relationships that are formed organically around a certain interest, you know, then, yeah, sometimes you build up the rapport where you can try to convince someone of something. And it's true. You know, I was just reading this new PRRI data that people who know, um, a gay person or a trans person are much more likely to support their rights than people who don't know them. Of course. But again, I think a lot of times that comes from, you know, someone coming out that you've had this longstanding friendship with. And then you're like, Oh, I actually know this person. And they're not this stereotype that Fox news has been. I actually with. think it's just the opposite because when somebody you, cause I know this as an ex evangelical as a person who used to be a Christian is when a serious Christian gives up the ghost and, and walks away, there's a lot of fear and hostility that gets directed towards that person because like you scare the hell out of me because if that can happen to you, it could happen to me or stay away from my kids or I don't. But what happens is when, when somebody moves in next door who you didn't know and you think they're going to be the dragon person and they turn out to be really nice, I think that that's very that's that's even more disarming when people form new relationships. Sometimes the people that have left you, like the Benedict Arnold vibe, those people are. I think people have a harder time accepting. But boy, <laughs> when when you get to know someone new, and you go like, I, I expected this because of this person's label. I expected them to be one way, and they turned out to be very very different. Um, I think that's really disarming. I mean, I do see the point there. Uh, And I think it depends in some cases on, you know, how important these ties are to you. Because, yeah, first of all, I I also want to say that identity and ideas are are not the same thing. But obviously, certain people that have certain ideas, um, 
find those ideas to be incompatible with other people's identities. I mean, I would say they're simply denying empirical reality. And so, off the, you know, straight off the cuff, that's illegitimate. But sure, you, know, you do feel like a traitor. And it's such an abusive thing, I think, to be made to feel like a traitor when you leave something like, like evangelicalism. But for some people, just the fact that your family still means a lot, so they start to try. And I actually still have a very, um, well, I shouldn't say still, because it's been a process, but I'm back to having a pretty close and decent relationship with my parents, though I think only my dad is fully LGBTQ affirming. And he doesn't always get everything quite right. I mean, he's still trying to get used to uh, name change and pronouns and so forth. Uh, but both my mom and my dad have really tried and do really try. And so we have a positive relationship uh, because they value family enough that they can sometimes listen and change their minds on some things. And my dad, he was a music pastor and in similar positions to that, you know, creative arts director, director of technology at a mega church um, in evangelical churches for decades. Uh, long story short, he got pushed out of his last job in an evangelical church in a way that I find typical of evangelicalism and that I think is pretty shitty. But uh, as a result of that, he ended up getting employed in a mainline church, an ELCA Lutheran church that's LGBTQ affirming. And that's great because that's where he was at that point. And he couldn't say that when he was still working in an evangelical church. But they knew he was too liberal. And that's part of why they, they pushed him out, right? Because he liked people like Rob Bell, <laughs> right? you know. Um, my mom, on the other hand, still teaches at a Christian school where if she were LGBTQ affirming and she said so, she could be fired. I don't think she is, but she just she is able to actually kind of just put that aside now and just relate. And it, sometimes she'll just see, say things like, well, you know, Jesus just told us to love God and love others. And that's what I'm just going to try to focus on it is the way she kind of puts it now. Um, but my sister, by contrast, is someone I just can't really relate to anymore because she won't, uh, you know, she's simply not empathetic at, at all. She's always entirely defensive. She pushes back. She's basically cut me off from my nieces that I adore. Uh, so, you know, yeah. I think that not everyone, uh, people sometimes act in ways that are somewhat contradictory to how you think they might logically act based on their ideology. And so I can re retain a healthy relationship with my parents and I'm on again, off again, estranged from my sister currently off again, but we don't, that doesn't mean we actually Do you, talk. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, you're, you, you've got a complicated deal because there's, it sounds like you've had both a faith transition and also an identity transition. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I don't know, I don't know if, if you can tease out, like if, if it had just been a faith transition, do you think it, you, do you think you'd be in the same situation or do you think like, oh, no, 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 the identity thing was a more, a bigger deal than the faith thing or the faith thing was a bigger deal than the identity thing? Um, you know, people knew I was changing uh, with respect to religion and politics um, before I came out as trans and uh, or even just before I just came out as queer as a way to try to prepare my family for coming out as trans and it didn't work. Um, well, it did with my dad because uh, he's someone that was more safe and never as threatened by difference as most evangelicals are. And I felt him out on different things for years and years. And so he had already deconstructed a lot of stuff. But um, 
you know, I could still comfortably socialize with my sister and her family as, as long as I didn't say certain things around her kids that my sister would get very defensive about. Um, you know, she wouldn't want me talking about queer rights or even the existence of queer people or anything. But when I was just a Democrat and someone who's no longer an evangelical Christian, and it took me a long time to actually say I'm an atheist. Um, to, and, but I'm there. I've been there since, yeah. you know, about 2017, I think, 18, maybe. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, that made so, the difference so, for I mean, my sister. So, I mean, yours is very complicated. Most of the people I talk to, it's, it's, they experience this other eye, being other eyes, purely on the basis of, of faith stuff. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes I, 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 what's interesting is because I remember what it was like to be in that world, I, I sort of understand it. I, like, I understand why somebody's like, I don't know if I want you with my kids because you've got a disease that could cause them to burn in hell forever. Like, if they, if they thought that what you said and did made any sense at all, they're in trouble. I'll and, just admit, I don't so I, empathize with that anymore. I, I understand it. But no, I, I can tell you don't. And think, and think it's terrible. And I have deliberately limited tried to limit my, my empathy toward that kind of thinking just to protect my own mental health, to be honest. But like, again, like, well, okay. And, and I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to argue with somebody protecting themselves from being, you know, from, from being harmed. But, but on a, on a very practical level, I, you see, I mean, it's funny because like, I'm, I'm the nightmare of evangelical Christians because I'm a straight white man who was really nice before (laughs) and is really nice now. I stayed married Mm -hmm. to my wife. My kids and I get along every, you know, know, I'm still in close touch with my father. And so, you know, my, my dad always says the problem with you, the thing that I, the thing that's so scary to me about you is, is that I always used to believe that you were the way you were because the Holy Spirit was working through you. Mm. And he said, you're the same guy without the Holy Spirit. And so it's hard for me yeah. to argue that you, that, that God is the crucial difference and that one cannot live a righteous life without God. If I thought your life was righteous before, and it's exactly the same after. Um, so I'm not like on some level, the reason I'm so scary to them is they, is because I make being a secular humanist look reasonable. You know, I'm, I'm not, you're much more scary. You're, you're much <laughs> less scary on one level. You're more scary on one level, but on another level, people go like, you know, I remember I did a, I did a conversation with Sean McDowell, not Josh McDowell, but his son, Sean, apologist. Mm-hmm. And when it was over, the organizer said, yeah, he said, I'll never have you back. He said, a guy like, <laughs> a guy like Richard Dawkins, we can deal with. He gets up and says, we're idiots and we're stupid and, and all this stuff. And that just rallies the base and everybody doubles down and everybody's like, see, those athe- atheism turns you into a monster. But they said, you show up and people go like, I like him. I find that appealing. Gosh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there's. I mean, a- I don't, I, I, I don't call evangelicals stupid. I, I always push back on that. I'm not a new atheist. Uh, I, I just, you know, am not going to budge on, um, you know, finding their total rejection of queerness to be just really evil. 
their re- the rejection is evil. Uh, yeah. And it has evil consequences. It, it, well, the people that are doing the rejection, the j- rejecting though, it's absolutely logical from their perspective. I mean, it's in the book. Like, like, like y- 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 it's very difficult to interpret scripture in any other way except that it's a pretty trans negative text. Well, there's her. They're stuck I with mean, it. They're, they're stuck with mm, it. There's no getting around what, it for that's, them. That's, that's what they think, but the Bible's not clear on that at all. And in fact, I mean, there's a couple of verses in the New Testament that are often interpreted as barring homosexuality, but the word homosexual wasn't even used in the Bible until the 1940s. And many scholars think Paul is actually referring to, uh, you know, forcing children into prostitution and that sort of thing. The only reference to something like gender nonconformity in the Bible would be the Ethiopian eunuch. And also that reference that says, you know, um, that some people choose to be eunuchs and so forth. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that's anti-trans explicitly. <laughs> so, wow. You sound like you're still in. Like you sound <laughs> like you should be teaching my mother's Sunday school class. <laughs> I don't want to be a, a theological problem to solve. And that's why that's a big reason I'm an atheist, you know, is that theology creates problems where they just don't need to exist. And in the end, you can interpret the Bible to make it say whatever you want it to say. So what when we talk about Christianity, what we're talking about is not like what the Bible says, but what is the traditional interpretation of the Bible? Or, right, or what, right, exactly. What, what, what are we working with here? And what I'm saying is, is that if you're part of that culture that interprets the book that way, there's no escape that like, like if, if you, if you, if you buy into the Bible in the way that they buy into the Bible, you're stuck. And so, you know, I've known lots of people who are like, I want to embrace my son, but my faith does not allow me to do so. Yeah. And, you know, in my less kind moments, I might call those people cowards, but you know, at the end of the day, what's going to win out your cruel ideology or your empathy and love of family. Ed Stetzer, when he meets a nice, a nice ex-Christian says, oh, you never believed in God really after all. Like that, that was his thing on me. He's like, he's like, I can handle Bart Campola because, you know, if you really listen to him, he never really believed in God. And, and, and I find myself like deeply offended, like, dude, I devoted half of my life to that ideology. Like I, I regret it deeply, but I was sincere. Please do not, mm-hmm. please do not challenge my sincerity. But it's important for him that a guy like me was never really a Christian because that protects his idea that if you're really a Christian, nothing can happen. Um, right. But but you're you're the same way in the sense that what you're saying is is if somebody is truly a Christian, if, 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 somebody, if somebody really loved their family, they really loved their trans family member, they wouldn't think they were going to hell. And I go like, no, they really are a Christian. They really believe in that interpretation. So they might weep and gnash or like my father, wake up in the middle of the night when the cold sweat's upset about it, but they can't get around that belief system in their head because that belief is sincere. They're not choosing to believe that. Yeah, it's sincere, but it's harmful. And on some level, they are choosing it. I'm going to disagree with you there. And I'm going to say that if they really wanted to, they could find ways to accommodate their Christianity to being LGBTQ affirming. If you really wanted to, could you be- There are even evangelical churches that do that. But if you really wanted to, could you be a Muslim? Uh, No, because it doesn't convince me. 
you know, I mean, uh, I'm not. Yeah, people don't choose what they believe. That Islam is true. People don't choose what they believe. Eh, on some level, I think they do. Being trans is not a belief. No, no, no. I'm not saying the trans thing. I'm saying like, could you be a Muslim? And you say, no, I couldn't, Bart. That's not compelling to me. And I, I'm with you. Well, I couldn't either. That means I'm, but that means I'm choosing not to. No, you're not. I could put a gun to your head. I could tell you that I'm going to kill a million orphan children if you don't become a Muslim and you still couldn't do it. You'd fail the lie detector test. <laughs> I suppose. But I, I still think this is a kind of false equivalence. And in any case, there's a big difference between my someone like my mom and someone like my sister. You know, my mom can accommodate me uh, at this point, has learned to respect my boundaries, has not, as far as I know, changed much about her evangelical faith. My sister, on the other hand, just pushes me out with the coldness of, quote unquote, Christian love, you know. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, this whole conversation that we're having, starting with Ed Stetzer and the way evangelicals look at ex-evangelicals, they pretend that they love us, but there's a sense in which what you're, you're pointing out is like, ah, that's it's kind of unctuous. I don't buy it. Right. It's self-serving, just like Ed Stetzer's narrative that you were never really a Christian. Right. And, and, uh, and also Ed Stetzer's narrative that like, it's my father's fault that at 47 years old, I couldn't believe in God. Like he, he wants, he's looking for someone to blame because your father was quote unquote too liberal. That's right. right? And, that's I, right. and I know that he became affirming in recent years, which yeah. is another reason I know it's possible. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, people admired Tony Campolo in my evangelical Christian school that was, and still is very anti LGBTQ when I was growing up, people admired him. Sure. So he has some rapport. And, with, and, and, with pe them. and sometimes people are like, People have their minds changed, but people don't choose. They can't choose what they believe. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like you can be convinced by the evidence of something sometimes under, under ideal circumstances, you can have your mind changed, but you can't wake up some morning and say, it would be convenient for me to believe that the moon is made out of Swiss cheese <laughs> and believe it. Like there are, believe me. If, if you could, if, if, if I could believe things that were convenient about 10 years ago, it would have been really convenient for me to keep believing in God. Yeah, no, I mean, I do, I do get that. I see, I see your point that uh, by and large, we don't choose our beliefs. I think subconsciously to some extent we, we do though, but we don't, um, you know, necessarily recognize those, those processes. I mean, taking a step back, I mean, it seems that, you know, my sister is essentially rejecting me, though she would, I suppose, claim that she's not, though she's been the one who has estranged me twice. Um, well, my, my, my guess is that on some level, she's terrified of you. Oh, exactly. Exactly that. She did everything that you were supposed to do, right? You know, got married at age 19, started having kids a few years later. Uh, you know, has her good Christian husband and, you know, high six figures value house and a boat and lives on a beautiful reservoir. And, you know, but I have never had that kind of money or those kind of resources, but I've spent a lot of time in, in Europe. I've seen the world. She's been a stay at home mom for a lot of her life. 
Um, and I think there is some resentment there. I do kind of pick up on that sometimes. But and, and sibling relationships can be complicated. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot uh, going on there. But 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 I think even if even if all the other things you wiped all that other stuff away, when an evangelical Christian trying to raise their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord want to keep them away from an attractive non-believer a non-believer who seems like a good person. I understand that. I understand yeah. that. that. That's, that's a and, you fear, know, told that's my a sister fear-based times, decision. I, I am still the same person. And yeah, she's, she's making fear-based decisions. And, um, you know, I think they're wrong and harmful and I, I really can't sympathize with them, but I do understand them. Yeah. And, and I think like, you know, it's funny because I, I, I remember when Joshua Harris you know, sort of dropped his announcement. A bunch of people, you know, emailed me and said, hey, you know, what about this? And, you know, I reached out to him. I, I reached out to all of those high profile people who leave the faith because that first year or so is really um, difficult a lot of times for people. And one mm -hmm. of the things is, is that a lot of times the atheist, you know, mafia wants to quickly put them in front of a microphone to denounce and to say things. And, and they're a lot of times they're still dealing with social consequences. It's like, yeah, you, you know, you, you got to process this. You got, just cause you've lost, you've lost one worldview, but worldview, but you may not have developed your new one. And, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and so I, so I, but I remember talking with Josh and realizing that the weight, you know, the weight of what he had done was going to lay heavy on him. But also mm -hmm. that the Ed Stetzers of the world were going to come after him and they were going to have to pick it apart and, and in a sense, make it about his lack of character or his selfishness or his desire to do his own thing or, you know, mm -hmm. that, because they had to find a way that it wasn't about the narrative just didn't make sense to me anymore. Or I kept praying. Right. I kept praying, and nobody showed up. Um, you know that that when when what what they have to do is they have to make it about the personal failure of the person who leaves the faith, rather than about the inadequacy of the faith itself. Yeah, and you know I think Ed Setzer thinks he's being, uh, you know, very clever or even broad-minded when he, you know, extends or express his personal warm feelings for someone like you or Josh Harris. And then, you know, goes to this narrative of parents, make sure you're really discipling your kids. Cause if you aren't, they won't end up Christians. Um, but yeah, he has to be able to twist things into something that he can use, which is precisely why he, he only, he, he's not going to write about, um, you know, most evangelical ex, ex evangelicals and he's not going to write about us in terms about which we would you know in terms that we would understand ourselves in yeah i mean i had bart Ehrman um in for a conversation uh a few months ago and ed stetzer's sure not going to write anything about bart Ehrman. um <laughs> you know this this sweet academic um with a heart of gold who just studies his way out um mm -hmm. you know and 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 there's no there's no juicy narrative. There's no, you know, it, I mean, you're right. He, and I guess, I guess the only difference between you and I is you see the, you see the machinations 
and the kind of the hidden motivations behind the way evangelical Christians relate to non-Christians in general, but in particular, former Christians. Mm-hmm. And you see, you see that, and, and I see that, and you seem like you're angry or disgusted with them. And I find myself um, full of pity for them. They can do no, and, and, and full of understanding. Like I, I was there, like they can do no other. They're, 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 they're constrained. There's nothing else they can do. Yeah, and I just don't believe that because you can let love conquer bad beliefs and you can do that and still stay within a pretty orthodox Christianity. So, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm not going to justify them in any way. Yeah. And 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 I, I I think that's both a I think that's both a sort of like a social science mistake, but more importantly, I think it's a strategic mistake because I think that the more we think of those people as being mean or of making of, of making bad choices, uh, the the less possible it is for us to engage with them in ways that would make it possible for them to change their minds. Engagement uh, again depends entirely on context, and I'm actually not angry most of the time about this stuff anymore. I've done a lot of processing. Um, and, you know, I, when I spend time with my evangelical relatives, it's, it's usually fine. Um, you know, there's particular tensions with, um, uh, my sister, but it's not like I've cut those people. No, no, I'm thinking in the of, public, I'm my... thinking more in the public discourse, in the articles that we write and the TV shows the, the pundits and the things, I, you know, I just had a conversation, um, a public conversation with Frank Schaefer. Um, and then the title of the conversation was to be angry or not to be angry. And <laughs> if you know Frank Schaefer and if you know me, you probably know who is on which side of that conversation. Oh yeah, that's, uh, I, I can guess. <laughs> and, and what I found was, is that he was like, he was, he was very cognizant of the fact that the language that he uses is really great for rallying his base. And what I was trying to point out to him is, is, there's a there's a better political agenda than rallying your base, and that that I don't know. Voter turnout is really what drives uh, electoral results. Of course, we have a lot of disadvantages baked into the system for Democrats these days, with um, equal Senate representation by state, voter suppression, gerrymandering, stacked Supreme Court. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean these you know, are really you, you you can't just sing kumbaya. And overcome oh, it, American polarization, which, by the way, is asymmetric and driven from the right. There has to come a point when you just take a stand. And that doesn't mean in every situation, in every interaction. I know, but let me ask you but, a question. I mean, sociologically, I'm actually very well informed. I read a lot of sociology of religion, uh, read a fair bit of psychology on, on this stuff. And I understand that, you know, neurologically, people aren't argued out of their positions. I understand that it's important for people to be able to relate to people who are different from them, and that's how minds are changed. But at the same time, you just can't put that burden on marginalized people 
to go out and make their already vulnerable selves more vulnerable by being nice to their direct abusers. And guess what? That's not how the civil rights well, I'm not, movement I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, won any victories. You do not win political victories by being nice. You win by playing hardball. Republicans get that and Democrats don't. It's so interesting because, I, I, first of all, I, 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 I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to be misunderstood to be saying that the onus for changing minds falls on like the most marginalized people in our society. That's not what I'm talking about. When I talk to a guy like Frank Schaefer, he's not a marginalized guy. He's working party politics. And what the interesting thing is, is that, you know, people say, oh, you got to take a stand and they're evil and we've got to stop them. And so I go like, yeah, you know, what's interesting is, is that if you look at what the vast majority of the American people believe about any issue from abortion to gay rights to anything like that, the Democrats should be doing great. Um, right. But it's those baked in structural disadvantages and the refusal of Republicans to budge on, say, yeah, letting Washington and, and that's, D.C. And become that's a, a state that keep us. Right. And, that, and that's uh, a great, you know, that's a great argument. Power. That's a great argument for what I would say is like, that's a great argument for deflecting responsibility. Because at some point when people tell me like, I'm not going to reach out. I'm not going to make friends with those people. I'm not going to try to engage with those people in the way that you're talking about. I sort of go like, and how's that been working for you over the last 30 years? Because the truth of the matter is, is that it's not working very well. Would you deliberately go and try to make friends with someone who deliberately dehumanizes you, posts, you know, ridiculous memes and disinformation mocking you and disparaging your very existence constantly no you know just no. Search, search facebook for like you know oh uncle fred who hates me i'll make friends with this dude no no I, I i would make friends with the person that he's sending those memes to the person who's who's not as hostile as that guy but who's listening to them i, you know, I just don't like, believe in being calculating about making friends now look if i make friends with somebody through social engagement and then i find out they have views that you know are um, you know let's say they're opposed to my to trans rights in some respect i mean then yeah i'm i'm maybe going to be able to have a conversation with that person about that but i'm not just going to go looking for them that, that is objectifying whatever purpose it's done for every conversation we ever have with anyone on some level is an exchange of ideas in which at least part of the agenda is to either gain understanding or to give somebody information or to gain information from them or to change their mind or to have our own mind changed. Like, like getting a changing other people's model of the model of reality is a big part of the human experience. And so, you know, when you say like you're, you, you, you know, I, I feel like what you're saying is part, you sound really calculating about your relationships. Like, like you really, yeah. you really are somebody who, thinks about how a conversation might shape the other person's way of thinking. And I go like, yeah, like, sure. Sometimes I'll, I'll be with a depressed person and I'll calculate in how I can maybe raise their level of optimism or hope. Yeah. I guess, I guess I don't know how you can be a human being in relationship with other human beings and not in some sense, always be trying to shape the people around you in the way that you think would be best for them. I simply don't think like that at all. And most of my conversations are not shaped around trying to change someone. Uh, Cause you know, the people I'm closest to 
are uh, people that I just feel comfortable with. Doesn't mean we agree on 100% of everything. And, you know, I mean, um, my, my roommate is also my best friend. And occasionally we disagree about um, political strategy or, you know, certain related things. But we have friendly exchanges of, dis- of disagreement and we're okay with agreeing to disagree on those things because our basic shared values are the same. And, you know, I simply am not going to try to put myself out deliberately to make friends with people who uh, don't you share know, your values, don't like the fact that I exist and don't share my values. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, like if you, if you, if you take, if you take what I'm saying always to the level of like, do I as a trans person have to put myself around people who want to destroy me? I go like that, that's, that's a straw man. Like, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not a fair thing to put on any trans person to put themselves in harm's way that way, even emotional harm's way. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is, is that there are a lot of people, the people that really shape the, the, the politics and the policy of our country and also the religious, the religious atmosphere are not those extremists at the outside that are saying the horrible things, but they're people in the middle that aren't sure what they think. And I'm not willing to seed those people because they're not with me, I really want to influence people to kind of like, for one thing, to see that there's a way of pursuing loving kindness as a way of life that doesn't require you to believe in supernatural nonsense. Um, and, and, and I mean, and, neither am I simply writing those people off. I mean, I would like to think that if they read a, a lot of what I write, they wouldn't feel super alienated by it. Um, but, you know, again, when it's just a personal interaction with someone that arises organically, Anything can happen. Now, you know, that's an interesting question I got for you. It's like, I, I read your article and I thought, wow, this woman is a good writer. Um, <laughs> where did, and, and, and then, and, but then at the beginning of the article, you sort of mentioned like, I went to this uh, evangelical c- college and I thought. Uh, uh, no, high school. High school. Okay. All right. So you didn't go to. Mm-hmm. That, that, right. I, I, I did kind of, I was, I was on my way out, although the actual, uh, you know, protracted and painful, um, De- deconstruction process took probably right. about 15 years, but um, I had severe doubts by the middle of high school. So, where, so where did you go? go up? Evangelical college, Indiana mostly. Okay. Um, I graduated from high school at Heritage Christian School in Indianapolis. Uh, as I said, my dad was a music pastor. Um, we were in um, an independent Christian church, you know, restoration movement, but the not quite as crazy as the Church of Christ people restoration. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you were, you were or, right there in Midwestern you know, evangelicalism. Yeah, part of my early childhood. And then my dad got called. Uh, yeah, I mean, he got a phone call and then a quote unquote call from God as well, you know, um, by this pastor and in, in Colorado Springs, who was starting a church plant with the missionary church, uh, a guy named Ron Clarkson. And um, he offered him a chance to, you know, uh, be a music pastor in a church that was doing the whole hip, cool, seeker sensitive thing. Uh, And dad was feeling a little bit stifled by all the old people in the Christian church, constantly like complaining to the pastor and the elders about his innovations like you know, having someone played trumpet during Christmas Eve service. <laughs> so, so he wanted to be, you know, he wanted to have that freedom. He didn't think he wanted to uproot his family and move us to Colorado Springs, but you know, Ron Clarkson played the, well, will you just pray about it card? <laughs> and, um, 
And so, you know, it kind of went from, oh, there's about a 90% chance we won't move to Colorado. There's about a 75%. There's about a 50%. You know, and then at some point we all agreed that it was God's will for us to move to Colorado Springs. So I went to um, a public school there in uh, for the second half of sixth grade. And I wanted to stay, but my parents wouldn't let me. So, and my mom was a Christian school teacher. And they also basically demand that their kids go to Christian the Christian schools where they teach, right? The administrations demand that. So for seventh and eighth grade, I was in Colorado Springs Christian School, which is, if anything, you know, even more extreme than Heritage Christian School. But then we were back in Indianapolis, which is, well, the Indianapolis metro area, which is also where I mostly grew up. So two and a half years out there with focus on the family people in our church. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was 1993. It was the year after focus had moved uh, right. to Colorado so- Springs. Yeah, no, I I, um, I remember I remember <laughs> visiting the Focus headquarters there, and it's just an amazing, you know, just it, it took the tour. Just I, I was already I was already not a Focus guy, but I just thought this will be crazy. <laughs> and I remember them showing us Dobson's office and uh, mm-hmm. and explaining to us that the paneling on the wall had all been donated. No monies from the ministry were used for this <laughs> opulent you know mecca um, um it was great. but if they were donated then how is that not I know, it is, from the ministry? it's all beautiful anyway. it was all beautiful so so where are you now where are you now uh i'm in portland oregon okay. so yeah i moved i moved to a place where i could feel safe yeah. uh, undergoing gender transition and and has portland um, been I, I mean, portland I, been a good place for you yeah yeah on the whole it certainly has that's great well listen i i really appreciate you know it's funny because um, my, my, uh, one, one of my favorite listeners often calls me, um, and says, the problem with you, man, is that you fall in love with every one of your guests and, and, and you, <laughs> there's never any conflict on your show. You never, you never push back on anybody. You're just like, that's great. Everything's great. Um, and so, um, that, I, I, I'm, he's, he's going to be very happy. That that you and I that you and I did not fully agree on everything. Um, he's going to be very proud of me. Um, <laughs> All right. But, well, but uh, glad I could help with. But that. you know what? One of the things I think we really do agree on is that we notice the way that evangelicals talk about ex Christians, mm-hmm. and there's something very very frustrating about being. I think by some of the by some of the leaders, at least, I think deliberately misunderstood by some of the followers, yeah. I think misled, but, but, but it's, it's frustrating to be sort of deliberately misunderstood or mischaracterized um, because, Absolutely. because people are trying to um, protect their, their, their sort of inner circle, their, their fiefdom. Um, Mm-hmm, and so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I pre- when I was reading your article, I thought to myself, like, yeah, this is a person that really gets that, gets like, 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 sort of, it, it gets, it causes the hair on the on the back of your neck to stick up when people talk about us this way. Um, mm. And I, I appreciate that, and I, I think that, um, you know, I think it's good. Uh, one of the things, like, you know, I don't need. It's funny, like. I don't even know if I agree with everything I said or, 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 you know, all I know is I think it's really important to talk about why they do it and, and what are the best ways to get them to stop or to counter the narrative that mm-hmm. the way that we get portrayed, because 
I don't think that, I think there are a lot of people lurking in the, in the pews of evangelical churches who would leave in a heartbeat if they believed that there was a way to live for love that was legitimate mm-hmm. and, and vital on the other side. And so it's really important to me to lob messages over the fence that say, there's life out here. There's love out here. There's, there's mission mm-hmm. out here. There's purpose out here. Um, there's fellowship out here. You know, it's very important to me. And so I, I just really appreciate being in a conversation, even though I don't think you see it the way I do. I think it's, it's really important to be in a conversation with somebody who's equally concerned about what they're saying about us inside there. Yeah. And I mean, I, I would agree. I do think it's important uh, to, you know, send messages to people in the pews who have doubts that uh, it's, it's okay. And there is life and love over here. Again, I think most people who would, who have met me in person would not describe me as an angry person. <laughs> no, you don't sound angry. No, no, I, I, no, you don't sound, you don't sound angry at all, except with your sister. And I get that. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's still some, and, that's, and with, again, like with, with her behind a lot of people's meanness is fear and behind a lot mm-hmm. of people's anger is hurt. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes, and, and yeah. that makes sense. And I did used to be a lot more angry and, you know, that's a valid thing. That's a process, part of the process yeah, that people have to go yeah, through. But, uh, you know, I don't write the things that I write for evangelicals. I mean, I imagine Ed Setzer, because I know he's a guy who Googles himself. Uh, he, he's going to read that article and maybe fume a little bit. And maybe I get a little bit of schadenfreude imagining that. But he's never <laughs> going to reach out to me because my article is not for him. And he can't twist it to the kind of narrative that he wants. To me, it's important to counter that narrative. Um, so that's one thing that I want to do, but you know, well, listen. I've, I've also used hashtag campaigns and things to simply draw attention to the fact that ex-evangelicals are out there and, um, you know, to, to help point people who might have doubts towards resources. All right. Uh, so just so listen, so listen, they're not alone. Right. So listen, Ed Stetzer's not going to reach out to you, but some of the people listening to this podcast might want to, what might want to, where, where are you to be found? Uh, so I'm, I'm very active and, you know, usually pretty responsive on Twitter. I have open DMs there. And um, when people write with like a, a serious sort of evangelical or doubting evangelical sort of point of view or question, I do try to write back to them, though sometimes I get overwhelmed with um, DMs. But yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at C underscore Stroop, S-T-R-O-O-P. Uh, I've got some resources, both ones that I produced and then links to other resources at my currently much neglected website, cstroop.com. But there's a blog there where I used to be very active and a, a lot of articles on there that uh, people have found helpful. And where are you publishing and, mostly um, these days? Mostly with Religion Dispatches. It's an online um, web magazine I know it about well. religion, politics, and society. That's a, I mean, for those of you that don't <laughs> know, that's a pretty prestigious uh, little outfit to be writing for. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's been around yeah. since 2013, been nominated for numerous Webbies uh, for the, the writing. And they publish people from a variety of perspectives, uh, a lot, including a lot of religious people and a lot of secular people. But it is a broadly liberal to progressive oriented website. Chrissy, thanks for talking to me. Well, thanks so much for having me, Bart. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll connect later at some point um, when we're Sounds good. when you're doing something that 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 you want to talk about. But in the meantime, enjoy Portland and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care.
All right, that was me and Chrissy Stroop. I hope you liked it. Or at least I hope you found it interesting. Or at least I hope it made you think of something that you want to tell me and then you can write it to me and tell me and I will be interested. So then, here is my Ingersoll quote for you. And do you know, it is a splendid thing to think that the woman you really love will never grow old to you. Through the wrinkles of time, through the masks of years, if you really love her, you will always see the face you love and one. And a woman who really loves a man does not see that he grows old. He is not decrepit to her. He does not tremble. He is not old. She always sees the same gallant gentleman who won her hand and heart. Now, that was Ingersoll in 1892. And maybe maybe today it would be the person you really love. Um, And it it wouldn't be so cisgender, so male-female, so traditional. But, ah, man. I I just hope that the core of it is true. Um, And I'm finding, as I do become decrepit, Um, and as my wife and I start to wear the masks of years, that we really do just see the face of the one we loved and won. And uh, I hope that's what happened for my kids at this wedding. I hope they're beginning that same journey. They're so beautiful now, and I hope that when they look at each other, they will be so beautiful 50 years from now. I hope that that's true for more and more people. And I hope that the stuff we're doing on this podcast makes it possible for more and more people to see each other that way. And not just in romance, but in friendship, but in parenthood, but as teachers to students. I just hope that we can look at each other and lock in in such a way that even as we even as we know and and watch and enjoy the aging process, we still can always see through to the heart of the person we first met and to the vitality that they brought and to the potential that they had and have all those layers present to us if we just squint our eyes and look carefully. I hope, uh, I hope that if somebody listens to episodes of this podcast 20 years from now, they're like, yeah, that's kind of what he was like. That's kind of what he was like. Not always that's what he was like. That's what he was like at that moment. And that was a part of what he was like from then on. Ah, like I said, weird episode because I'm in a weird headspace. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll be normal again next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search humanize me on Facebook to ask your own question on the show. Leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. 2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week.
Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life, bigger than the world, living out the hopes and dreams of every boy and every girl. You could fly higher than the sky, shine brighter than the stars. You can live all you ever wanted. Oh, 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 oh,